All right, everyone, I want to thank our sponsor today, Organifi. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about healing and the healing journey. Well, an integral part of that are the foods and the drinks that we consume. I know you know this. If you're like me, you know the importance of eating healthy, but you don't always have the time or the willpower to cook with all the colors of the rainbow. Organifi's superfood blends make it easy and enjoyable to add more variety and nutrition to your day. These are delicious organic powders that you can add to water or milk, stir and drink. It literally takes 30 seconds. It is that simple. A couple weeks ago, I was right about to start uh, a green juice fast, a kind of a short mini fast. And I kid you not, the day, the night before, Organifi reached out to me about sponsoring this podcast. And I will tell you that I was thrilled because this is aligned with what I'm doing. I'm familiar with Organifi. I've used them in the past before. I want to bring, be able to bring to you um, quality products and things that are going to promote a healthy lifestyle. Organifi Green Juice is the one I use. It's the one I use every morning so that I know right away I'm starting the day on a healthy note. It's loaded with vitamins, loaded with minerals, and essential antioxidants. As a listener of the Trauma Therapist Podcast, you can get 21% off any item by going to Organifi.com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. Once again, to get 21% off any item, Go to Organifi, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. All right, everyone, I want to thank our sponsor today, Organifi. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about healing and the healing journey. Well, an integral part of that are the foods and the drinks that we consume. I know you know this. If you're like me, you know the importance of eating healthy, but you don't always have the time or the willpower to cook with all the colors of the rainbow. Organifi's superfood blends make it easy and enjoyable to add more variety and nutrition to your day. These are delicious organic powders that you can add to water or milk, stir and drink. It literally takes 30 seconds. It is that simple. A couple weeks ago, I was right about to start uh, a green juice fast, a kind of a short mini fast. And I kid you not, the day, the night before Organifi reached out to me about sponsoring this podcast. And I will tell you that I was thrilled because this is aligned with what I'm doing. I'm familiar with Organifi. I've used them in the past before. I want to bring, be able to bring to you um, quality products and things that are going to promote a healthy lifestyle. Organifi Green Juice is the one I use. It's the one I use every morning so that I know right away I'm starting the day on a healthy note. It's loaded with vitamins, loaded with minerals, and essential antioxidants. As a listener of the Trauma Therapist Podcast, you can get 21% off any item by going to Organifi.com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. Once again, to get 21% off any item, Go to Organifi, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. Trauma Therapist Podcast, episode 311.
Welcome to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson. My mission is to raise awareness of trauma and to help support and inspire new trauma workers through this podcast and my membership community, Trauma Therapist 2.0. Thanks so much for joining me today, and here we go. All right, everyone, I want to thank our sponsor today, Organifi. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about healing and the healing journey. Well, an integral part of that are the foods and the drinks that we consume. I know you know this. If you're like me, you know the importance of eating healthy, but you don't always have the time or the willpower to cook with all the colors of the rainbow. Organifi's superfood blends make it easy and enjoyable to add more variety and nutrition to your day. These are delicious organic powders that you can add to water or milk, stir and drink. It literally takes 30 seconds. It is that simple. A couple weeks ago, I was right about to start uh, a green juice fast, a kind of a short mini fast. And I kid you not, the day, the night before, Organifi reached out to me about sponsoring this podcast, and I will tell you that I was thrilled because this is aligned with what I'm doing. I'm familiar with Organifi. I've used them in the past before. I want to bring, be able to bring to you um, quality products and things that are going to promote a healthy lifestyle. Organifi Green Juice is the one I use. It's the one I use every morning so that I know right away I'm starting the day on a healthy note. It's loaded with vitamins, loaded with minerals, and essential antioxidants. As a listener of the Trauma Therapist Podcast, you can get 21% off any item by going to Organifi.com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. Once again, to get 21% off any item, Go to Organifi, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash trauma and use the code trauma. All right, guys, welcome back to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. I am very excited today to have as my guest, Victor Yalom. Victor, welcome. Hi, nice, nice to be here. All right. So Victor Yalom is a licensed psychologist with over 25 years of experience and the founder and CEO of Psychotherapy.net producers and distributors of over 300 training videos in psychotherapy. Uh, Victor, I'm well aware of uh, you know, what you've been doing at psychotherapy.net and um, excited to talk to you today about uh, your journey, what you've got going on. First, share with our listeners where you're from, where you're calling from, and then let's, uh, let's dive in. Right, so I am uh, at my home in Mill Valley, California, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I lived in, grew up in the Bay Area in Palo Alto and lived in San Francisco for many years and uh, about 10 years ago moved, moved up here just north of San Francisco. Nice, nice. So one of the things that uh, you know, really intrigued me about bringing you on was uh, you know, looking at, uh, obviously a lot of people I'm sure are familiar with your father. Um, maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with your father. We'll certainly talk about that. But um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on here was to to partner with you uh, regarding the course that your father put together, you put together of your father, Irvin Yalom and the Art of Psychotherapy, and we'll certainly talk more about that as we go on. But I wanted to uh, you know introduce that to my listeners and um, uh, make them aware of that and help talk about that and promote that. But first, let's kind of dial down, talk about you, because I'm really interested 
in, as I am with all my guests here, your journey, um, how you got into this, how is it that we're talking here today? So why don't you uh, tell us that story? Yeah, it depends where I should start, but I'll, we'll figure it out together. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great uh, lens to, to talk to all therapists because, you know, often therapists, you know, especially well-known ones have come up with some theory or some technique and that's almost, that can be divorced from who they are, which it shouldn't be because I think, uh, you know, ourselves are our tools and we get interested in certain types of work, certain types of approaches, certain types of uh, client populations, generally because of something in our life. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important not to divorce, never to divorce who we are as therapists from the work we do. Um, so I, you know, I, you know, went to grad school in, in clinical psych many years ago, partly out of a, you know, crisis in my life, what, what I could do, what was meaningful. And certainly my father, uh, you know, knowing about the field of psychotherapy through him and, uh, you know, knowing him, knowing who I was, that I was, you know, he, he encouraged me to do that. And uh, so I, I ended up, you know, becoming, you know, a, a psychologist, psychotherapist, being in private practice for 25 years, years or so. And, um, you know, being influenced by his work and another mentor of mine, James Bugenthal, a existential a humanistic psychologist, uh, you know, out here in, in California. And uh, really after I completed my graduate training, I had a chance, you know, to study with Jim Bugenthal. There was a group of us studying with him. And he he's, was and, you know, is well known among uh, therapists that are interested in an existential or existential humanistic orientation, as he called it, but not... Uh, too widely known outside of, of that interest. And, you know, you know, existentialists or humanists are not kind of in the mainstream these days. Um, and uh, he was a master uh, trainer. He really gave a lot of thought. How do you train? How do you develop therapists? And also a master practitioner. And he would demonstrate, uh, demonstrate his skills, doing working with us, doing role plays. And he was... Uh, 80 years old, uh, you know, at the time or at, at, at a certain time that I was working with him, we kept saying, we need to get this guy on, on tape. And back then it was tape uh, for people that don't have a chance to study with him and see his work because he really offered something uh, unique. Uh, he was a real master. Um, so, so how I, long had you been, how, let me just interrupt for a second. How long did you get uh, acquainted with him after you graduated? It was right Right soon after uh, I started, okay. I heard him come speak to our uh, school for a lunchtime lecture. And uh, I'll just tell you one story about him that originally drew me to him. Uh, he was telling some story about, uh, at the school, a lecture about a Ford truck. And uh, I forget what the details were, but it was so grounded and down to earth. You know, I was familiar, you know, a, a friend of my father's, uh, uh, you know, a family friend, Rollo May, famous existential psychologist that I had some contact with and did a seminar. And he was much more cerebral and would talk about Greek gods and this or that, just something that I didn't, 
<laughs> I didn't personally relate to. And so when I heard uh, Jim Bugenthal tell this kind of salt of the earth story about the, the Ford truck, and as he told it, he was tearing up. And that really struck me as well. Like, because he, he didn't apologize. So men often in our culture, you know, if they cry, they immediately, oh, I'm sorry, as if there's something, you know, I've lost control. And he, he teared up telling some story that was moving to him uh, and was very comfortable with that. And I thought, this is, I'm, I'm drawn to this. This is interesting to me. Who is this guy? And so I ended up studying with him right, uh, right after grad school and probably over a period of 10 years. But well. So ended up uh, producing, you know, recruiting some clients. We kept saying, we got to film this guy. So a, a buddy and I eventually did that. We recruited some clients willing to be on camera. I got some videographers, ended up making a video of him doing two sessions with, with uh, a couple clients, chose the best uh, client and produced that into a VHS tape. Uh, and, uh, you know, long story short, ended up going to a conference, the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, fantastic conference every four years, and having a little table and selling a lot of those videos and other videos of other therapists and realized there was a desire, there was a hunger for therapists to see uh, other master therapists in action doing therapy. And this was before, you know, DVD, before streaming. It was, wow. it was not easy to get hold of these things. And... Uh, so now 25, you know, 22 years later, I ended up, you know, doing more of these uh, kind of a side business for many years, uh, waiting in line at the post office on Saturdays, mailing out DVDs, you know, VHS tapes and DVDs, and then ended up growing a business and gradually wound down my practice almost entirely. I still do a couple things, uh, you know, forming a company and getting some employees and continuing to produce videos of master therapists, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, my father or Vialam in this new series, Sue Johnson on EFT, uh, Peter Levine in somatic experiencing, Otto Kernberg, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, Reed Wilson on cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, just, you know, lots and lots of therapists with the idea that you can learn something different mm -hmm. watching therapists than reading their theories. I mean, right. both, both are valuable, but, but seeing them on screen, seeing their voice, their yeah. body language, their pacing, having them talk and reflect honestly about, you know, what happens in this session? Why did they say this? Why didn't they say this? What, what do they wish they had done differently? And so yeah. that, um, that was one of the things that really struck me in graduate school. I remember we saw some videos of, of master therapists, and I was really struck by exactly what you were uh, describing. Um, their demeanor, their manner, their, the way they listened. And that's one of the things that really struck me in um, watching your dad in, 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 that, uh, in the online course. We're going to be talking about the way he listened. And that's not always an easy thing to do, to sit back um, and, uh, and do that and let things unfold. But um, before we move on and talk about the course, I want to kind of jump back because you kind of brushed over <laughs> an important element. And, you know, it's kind of easy, I think, for our listeners to think, well, of course, your dad was, you know, uh, in the field. Of course, you were going to jump into it. 
Um, but why do you think um, you, you were pulled into it? Can you talk a little bit more about that? What, what you think, uh, how it tapped into who you are or what you consider to be your strengths? Talk a little bit more about why you got into this field. Yeah, well, it's, I don't think it's um, a clear, well, it's a clear story. I think, we, I think I'll talk about me, but I think in general, first, we all are drawn in for certain reasons. Usually there's some compelling personal reasons. I mean, if, if you want to just make a lot of money, it's not the field to be in. Uh, if you, I think, don't have... Uh, some real personal struggles in life, trying to figure out who you are in the world and, uh, or uh, haven't dealt with some maybe members of your family that have had some real, you know, emotional challenges, you know, uh, why would you be interested? You know, uh, you know, if so, I think for most of us, if therapists, I know there, there's some, it's not just that they're interested in people. It's just, they've usually had some pretty profound uh, emotional struggles themselves or cl- people close to them. Not, not a hundred percent of the case, but for me, I, you know, I had objectively, my life didn't have any major crises. You know, I grew up in a, you know, relatively comfortable middle-class uh, life, uh, had, you know, no, you know, a fine family, but I, for whatever reason, I, didn't connect with people easily growing up. I struggled with making friends. I was lonely. Um, you know, I just had a hard time kind of making my way in the world and uh, uh, majored in economics, was always interested in business, which I was kind of come to fruition later in life, actually running a small business. Um, but got out, got a job at the phone company. It was terrible. I hated it. I got fired. You know, I, uh, you know, had various odd jobs. I got fired basically from every job I had. I just was not someone who likes to follow orders from other people. And uh, so I had to, it was kind of at a crisis at that point of my life, figuring out what to do. And um, I remember back in college, I, I enjoyed economics and I, you know, did an honors thesis and part of that, you know, after you do that, you go out with the professors, they take you out to pizza and beer and, and the conversation that they had with each other, was just chatting kind of superficial. And I felt I could not, I would not want to spend my life with colleagues that are not able to really talk to each other in a real deep, profound you know, authentic way. At least that's how it felt to me. They they may have felt they were being very deep and authentic. I don't I don't, I don't know, but for me, uh, you know, so I'd say one of the things that drew me to the field is I, I didn't feel like I had a lot of options. I I felt like I want to be working in a field where you know I was struggling with myself, and I wanted to be in a place in a field where I could be real with my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, and that would be addressing issues that are seem deep and meaningful to me. Um, so that's kind of, I think, you know, and my you know, father, I saw a model and he thought maybe, you know, I'd always been introspective and interested in kind of my, you know, probably more, uh, a little more self-involved than, than I hope I am now, but, you know, kind of involved in my struggles. And it, it seemed at least to be a profession where there was room for that. 
Like part of the growth of a therapist is to work on yourself. And that's one thing fairly uh, unique about our profession is that to be a good therapist, and I think structure it into at least some training of therapists is the idea that you've got to uh, get to know yourself. You know, I think the only profession I think of that's somewhat analogous is acting. You know, to, in some schools of acting, really, to develop yourself, you have to, to develop your acting skills. You, you have to be able to know yourself and your own emotional baggage and journey and inner life. But it's, uh, so I, I, that, I think, was what drew me in uh, initially. And then as I developed, other things obviously influenced me. Appreciate you sharing that. I mean, a lot of people listening to this are you're kind of just starting out um, specifically on, on their trauma informed journey, or their therapist just kind of getting getting into the field, and um, you know, sharing that that little nugget of, of uh, uh, personally what drew you into the field. I think it helps a lot of people um, as as they're kind of following along their own path. So let's right. talk well, about. Let, let me just add one. Thing. I mean, I think I felt a lot of discomfort, embarrassment, shame, that I had all these struggles starting out. I guess one thing I would want to say to any therapist, you know, almost, you know, I deal with lots of therapists uh, in this work. Uh, and, you know, it's more common than not. It's, it's almost universal that, you know, therapists, when they're starting out, are filled with a lot of confusion, both, both about themselves and, and just the anxiety of working with clients. Uh, it's it's an anxious profession, and that's normal. And I think it's enough to deal with that anxiety and the anxiety of being human and figuring out who we are in the world. But then to feel shame about that, like I can't let my colleagues know. I've got to, you know, I've got to have it all together. I I couldn't, you know, that confounds it. And I know I struggled with that. And I think a lot of I would like to offer as a, as a gift or a note of encouragement to therapists, like that's okay. That's normal to struggle both as an individual, as a person and as a developing therapist. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do here is create a platform for, uh, for, for trauma therapists, specifically for new trauma therapists. Uh, what can I put together what can I offer them uh, in addition to the podcast and my membership community? And I thought the course, um, you know, you have an online course, Urban Yalom and the Art of Psychotherapy. And though it's not uh, specifically, you know, trauma related, uh, the work your father has done with regards to uh, group psychotherapy and as an existentialist is so relevant, I think, for, uh, you know, my listeners and, and my community that I thought it would be great to, to partner with you and, and promote this course. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, the course, how it came about? And, and I'm, I definitely have questions because having gone through it myself, there are a lot of gems in there that um, I just want to kind of tease out. But why don't you start off and uh, talk with our listeners about what uh, initiated, well, I think it's obvious why you put the course together, but let's talk a little bit about the course. Sure. So as I said, we've been doing, you know, we have been producing videos and also tracking down videos that others have produced and putting them in one collection. So we have over 300 training videos 
uh, in the psychotherapy.net collection. And we have memberships, uh, our own memberships different than yours that people can sign up like a Netflix style plan for them. But I'm always, you know, looking to do more and take it to the next level. And a lot of earlier videos that were done that we did that others had done were kind of single session therapy uh, or, which is great because of all the reasons we already discussed, but seeing a single session of therapy, the first session is obviously different than, you know, the 10th session or a whole course of therapy, different things happen. Um, So of course I wanted to get my father. Uh, We had some other videos, some older videos of him doing group therapy, which were done with actors, which were very well done, but they're getting, you know, a little old and, you know, Group therapy is not, you know, I think it's a fantastic thing, but most therapists aren't doing groups or aren't really well trained in groups. Uh, And I wanted to get him on camera doing some actual sessions with clients. And he's, uh, despite being known as a group therapist, he's not a real big group person. He's he's introspective. He's a little shy. And he's protective of his clients, even though he's written about many with with their permission and with changing details, of course. Uh, So he was reluctant uh, to do this. And I had to stay at him for a number of years. And he was getting older, like the rest of us. And uh, I felt there was some urgency. I really wanted to to capture him uh, doing therapy. So he he finally agreed. Um, We recruited uh, a number of clients. I screened them, you know, via Skype sessions and made, tried to get clients that I thought had issues that would be amenable to, uh, high, you know, I mean, he can work obviously with a wide range of clients, but we're looking at clients that might have issues that would be of particular interest to him that would work well with, with him. You know, he does have, uh, I think two main things that I, that I think are important, uh, in his existential approach, which he always says is not an approach. It's not a school. He's never, he's always says, I'm not trying to start a brand and yet another brand of psychotherapy. It's, it's, existentialism uh, is a lens that you can see all clients through. And I think so in terms of what you're saying, you know, you're interested in trauma and trauma therapy, you know, it's not, uh, you know, mutually, uh, in, you know, exclusive. He would say that, uh, this existential lens to look at human problems can be applied to any type of claim. It's not a specific type of treatment. Uh, that and then him working interpersonally in the here and now, uh, paying attention to what goes on between the client and the therapist in the session. We can talk more about that later. So it, anyway, I recruited, ended up recruiting three clients uh, that we were going to have him do two sessions with each. Uh, one client ended up really wanting to work further and mm-hmm. uh, ended up coming in for about nine or 10 sessions. We edited down those sessions and added uh, voiceover commentary and discussion. Which uh, I love, by the way. Yeah, so he could yeah. highlight kind of what what was triggered, what what, why he made an intervention, mm-hmm. why he didn't, what his struggles or challenges were. Uh, so that's about, it's a seven and a half hour course. That's about four hours of the course is these three clients. 
that are were brave. I mean, I, I'm protective of clients too. I mean, uh, we had, you know, some uh, therapists who wanted to be on camera. They, you know, they, of course, therapists w- would love to work with my father, but I'm pretty cautious. I said, look, this, this is going to be seen widely in our profession. Are you sure you want uh, a video of you, you know, working with my father that your other colleagues are going to see, especially talking about sensitive issues. So, so I, you know, I, uh, anyway, I ended up choosing these three clients. I thought they all had interesting issues and ways of working that uh, revealed different aspects uh, of him and his work and about the craft and art of psychotherapy. And then uh, about half, three, three and a half hours, uh, the first part of, of this course is I do an extensive interview with him where I really we discuss how he got into the field, what his initial influences were, uh, uh, talk about group therapy, talk about existential psychotherapy, talk about working with the here and now. Uh, uh, I, where I, you know, I know his work well, obviously, where I, I, I try to really tie the strands of his life and his work together in some kind of coherent narrative. Uh, so, um, I was very pleased with, with how that came out uh, and with the whole course came out. So I think that's so it's, it. So it's, 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 it's educational, it's informative, but it's also um, really clinically uh, potent and, and, and educational in that sense too. Kind of a, another thing that I really like about the course. Um, there's a couple, couple of things that, again, I think are really relevant to Working with people who've been impacted by trauma. Okay, uh, tell me talk yeah. about one of the, one of the things I want to talk about is um, you know one of the as- aspects in the sense of uh, existential the lens of ex- existentialism is uh, you know the here and now and, and being vulnerable. These are two things that your father talks a lot about. And the other thing that re- I really that really struck me is um, I think it was in the second uh, interview he did of the three clients and he talked about might have been a third with the, with the women whatever he said for each client you have to create a different therapy yes and that to me is is pretty profound and i think a lot of our listeners are going to kind of bite into that's kind of a gold nugget so let's talk about these things sure Start wherever you want uh- <laughs> Well, um, you mentioned a couple things, kind of working in the here, what he calls the here and now. And I have kind of a, you know, somewhat of a unique take on that because I know his work, and I hope that's conveyed through our, our interview. Is how that came about. Um, he, you know, he he became known initially when he wrote his first book, impressive first book, the 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 theory and practice of group psychotherapy. And he took, you know, some, you know, work that had been done, but never kind of formally laid out in in that way and developed what he called an interpersonal model of group therapy. And in a nutshell, the gist of that theory is you people, it's an interpersonal therapy. 
different from, there is a, a branded therapy called interpersonal psychotherapy, which I found out later, I assumed it, it had something to do with his work, but it's not, it's, it's very different. Uh, so his is an interpersonal model of group therapy. And the gist of the model is, you know, we all, you know, we clients, humans, but clients in this case, you know, we have different struggles and you can see those struggles from different lenses. You can see them from a bio, you know, bio, you know, biological lens, you know, that people might be, you know, genetically predisposed to, towards depression. You can see them through a, a CBT lens. You can see them through a, a psychoanalytic lens. His lens is interpersonal that, uh, again, so not to say, you know, he always says, this is not to say these other ways of looking and understanding the problem are not true. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the way that he's looking at it, specifically what's most effective in group is that we, are, we have interpersonal challenges and part of being healthy and alive and human, we're social animals. And so the group by its nature, because it's a group, is most effective at helping people understand their interpersonal challenges, their deficiencies, their shortcomings, what gets in the way of them having healthy you know, relationships, okay? And the group model says that, you know, his model says we can best understand that not by doing individual therapy in the group as some models do and, you know, uh, but by encouraging group members to interact honestly with each other in real time, just to sharing their reactions to each other. And in doing so, the group will create a, a social microcosm. In other words, if I, um, if I am very anxious interpersonally, if I have social anxiety and I'm worried that, you know, I see you look at me and I think, oh, what are you thinking of me? You probably, you know, I saw you rolling your eyes. You probably thought uh, what I said was stupid. I, I see the world largely through that lens. I'm always anxious and worried about what people will think about me. Uh, that's going to get come out in the group if 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 the therapist runs the group that way. Uh, conversely, if I'm somewhat uh, narcissistic and put other people down, you know, uh, that's going to come out. And if you ask people for their reactions towards me, you know, and there's a certain level of trust and skill of the therapist, they're going to say, "Gee, I, I didn't like the way Victor talked to me then," and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the so these types of interpersonal patterns, maladaptive interpersonal patterns, will come out in the group. And the way that that happens, the therapist tries to get people to connect with each other in what's called the here and now of the group. Not to just tell stories about what happened to them at work or with their girlfriend, because the group members can't really be privy to what's happening. They don't know, you know, but they do know because they see what's happening in the group. So that's kind of the here and now. So I know I've maybe give, gone more detail than that. But then in his writings, he's known for really being very honest and open with clients. You know, gee, I, I felt, uh, you know, when you said that, you seemed concerned about how I was reacting to you. Or, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel as connected to you when you said that, you know, uh, some things like that, or uh, you seem irritated in me. Can we talk about that? You know, and then sharing his own reaction in a way that's, mm -hmm. you know, therapeutic, not just to share yeah. his own reaction for the hell of it. Sure. Um, so what my understanding is, uh, is that he really took 
that learning from the group of the power of working in the here and now and brought that into individual therapy where you can use what's happening between you and the client often it's not the whole it's not the whole shebang it's not the whole uh, whole of what he does but he can use that very powerfully to pay attention to what happens between him and the client and to use that to help inform the client about what their interpersonal world is like where they get into trouble and to be open and vulnerable to being there with them. And I think part of that is coming from group. Part of that, I think, can come from existential theory. That is, we human beings, we're all facing certain existential conditions and struggles. We are fellow travelers. I am not, I as a therapist, I'm not immune to the, uh, you know, existential concerns that he, he lists out, fear of death or ultimate you know, aloneness or meaninglessness, things like that. Uh, that's his take on it. I, I think it's possible to, to be very interested in existential theory and philosophy and be cerebral and detached, you know. So I, I don't think that's a good therapeutic approach, but his reading on kind of existential literature, philosophy, uh, led him to a point of part of part of being a good therapist is to really be there with the client in that way. One of the things that I think um, many, not all certainly, but many new therapists who are kind of beginning their trauma-informed journey run up against is, you know, what modality should I, should I pursue? What workshop should I take? And obviously, there are so many. But this idea of, uh, you know, creating a, a different therapy for each, each client kind of rubs right up against that. Talk a little bit about that. I think that's so uh, rich and, and, and relevant for all therapists and for uh, those pursuing trauma, trauma specialization also. Talk a little bit about that, Victor. Yeah, I'm glad. I realized as I finished, I, I skipped over that important point. So I'm glad you brought me back to that. Yes, I, I think there are uh, trends in our field which are well-intended but problematic and in some ways destructive towards the growth of developing yourself into a masterful therapist. And I think that this focus on evidence-based therapies, it sounds like a good thing, except the research, you know, it's supposed to be research-based, but the research over and over and over again by many researchers, you know, Scott Miller, Lampert, or, you know, many that we, we have, you know, interviews with on our side, probably people you've interviewed, you know, point over and over again, the actual research findings shows that, you know, specific modalities explain a minuscule percent of the variance. And what are the most powerful predictors are, are the, these common factors, which the most, two most being therapeutic alliance, which I think has to do with the skill of the therapist, uh, and the client therapist match and client factors. Certain clients are going to get better uh, with with regardless of not regardless, but they're much more likely to get better and to be able to use therapy than than other clients. So that concerns me and many people about this full scale onboarding of evidence based therapies, which you have to learn this approach uh, when in fact the evidence doesn't support that. Yes, the evidence shows that these approaches, which may be easier to study because they're, they're more cookie cutter, 
and they get, may get more funding. The evidence does show they work, but the evidence does not show that they work better than other therapies, which may or may not be, you know, well studied. So I want to just establish that point that, you know, the evidence does not really support uh, this, this onboarding we have of evidence-based approaches. So uh, back to your question, you know, developing a unique therapy for every client, well, I think that does speak to what the evidence does support, which is the crit critical nature of a therapeutic alliance. And one of the ways you do that is to really listen to the client, engage with them, be curious, be open, uh, take risks yourself. If you're uh, if you are encouraging the client to take risks, I mean, you can be a, you know, CBT therapist and, you know, they're encouraging, you know, having them do exposure therapy for something that they're very anxious about. That requires them to take a lot of risk to put themselves in a very uh, anxiety producing situation. You're encouraging your clients to take risks. I think one way is to model that. Really? Say more about that because in in the course there's a there's a part taking risks. What exactly do you mean by that? So well, developing a new therapy for every client means you're willing to, to you're willing to try out things with them. Mm -hmm. you're willing to maybe do a role play with them. You're willing to do things that maybe you're not so comfortable with. You're willing to ask them how's the therapy going. Uh, you're willing to engage them in a here and now moment by saying, how are we working together? Uh, what, what have you found helpful? Is there anything today that you haven't found helpful? Or, you know, you meet them a second session. I want to I reflect back on the first session. Uh, what stood out for you? Uh, was there anything that didn't feel right? Uh, you know, and if they, if they, uh, if they say, yeah, I noticed, uh, you know, or certainly one thing I struggled with, you know, through my career is, is kind of getting sleepy. And I, you know, it was just a vulnerability I had. And I found some of it was temporal in terms of time of day. And I realized I should never see clients at two o'clock. And I took a nap then. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes we get distracted. Uh, we get irritated. We get sleepy. And if the client says, yeah, I noticed you were, you seemed a little, you know, I noticed you yawning. You know, taking a risk is saying you're right. right. I was. Uh, and it may be, have something to do with them. It may not. And to be, to be thoughtfully self-reflective and self-revealing, always in the service of what's going to be helpful for the client. Uh, so that could be taking a risk. Um, I love that. I love that. Um, so, again, you know, in part, we're talking about the course here. Um, uh, Irvin Yalom in the Art of Psychotherapy. Victor, what do you think, or, or and what was you, are your hopes that people will take away from this course? So, um, certainly, uh, you know, a lot of therapists are interested and drawn to my father's work, so I think they're going to get a much deeper understanding of, of, of his work, I, I hope, um, and to see him 
in action. There's one to re- one thing to read about his cases, but to see, uh, you know, whether you fully buy into some of his theories or not. Like, you know, he's obviously been one of his his big points regarding existential uh, uh, lens is is the importance of, of death and death awareness. Uh, and well, how do you you know how do you bring that into to your work with clients if they don't you know they may not bring it up. Most clients don't come up and and say you know in my many you know twenty five years of practicing I don't recall a lot of therapists spontaneously bring up the idea of uh, death anxiety. But seeing through an existential lens, uh, you know you see how. He, he brings that up. There's one client, Luke, who's uh, dealing, he comes in because he's dealing with the question of whether to get a vasectomy or not. He has had to- again, this, just to con- contextualize it, this is within the course you're talking about. Yes, yes. Luke, yeah, yeah. One of the clients that he saw for two sessions, his presenting problem is a dilemma about whether to get a vasectomy or not. Uh, his, they, he has two kids, I believe. His wife doesn't want more kids. Uh, he doesn't want more kids, and yet, so on a logical level, that seems like an option, but it brings, he's very torn about it. And so one could take kind of a problem-solving approach, uh, make a pro and con list and deal with it on a very logical level. My father sees this decision as an, as an existential dilemma. It has to do with, uh, with choice. It has to do with freedom, and ultimately, uh, you know, it has to do with death. By making that decision, he's closing out possibilities. And as you get older in life, uh, you know, we make choices that limit us. Um, so you'll see how how he does that, uh, how he works with with uh, uh, dreams. Uh, third client, uh, uh, um, Eugenia. Uh, that uh, young woman in her early 20s has a kind of a panic and uh, panic kind of existential full-blown crisis, which is not that common. And and she doesn't have any understanding of it. Why did this happen? I won't go into all the details of it, but how do you work with that? I mean, we, I think we're more comfortable generally working if someone has panic or someone has, you know, mild depression or someone's in a situational crisis. Uh, I think we're our training and our, uh, I think we're generally more comfortable. That's kind of in our, 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 our wheelhouse as therapists. But someone comes and reports, suddenly I was just walking along on the street and I suddenly felt this panic, the sense of meaninglessness. I saw there thousands and tens of thousands of people walking around and we just seemed like ants and what are we doing here? And suddenly that kind of, I felt the rug pulled out from under me. Uh, how, how do you approach that? Uh, you'll you'll see you'll see you'll see many different takes he he has in terms of trying to work with that. It was a very challenging case for him. Again, and all these things we're talking about here are you know really relevant to people working with individuals who've been impacted by trauma. Again, you know why I think um, I wanted to to help promote this course. So you have a special offer for Trauma Therapist podcast listeners. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So um, you know our. My business, our website is psychotherapy.net. And if you go to psychotherapy.net slash trauma, psychotherapy.net slash trauma, you'll see details of a discounted offer for that course 
for podcast, uh, you know, trauma, trauma therapy podcast listeners. So awesome. I encourage awesome. folks to go to that. Thank um, you. And I'll also have links at the show notes page at the trauma podcast.com uh, for that. I really appreciate you offering um, uh, podcast listeners uh, a discount for that. I'm, I'm excited to promote this, promote this course, get it out there. Um, any, any kind of closing remarks regarding the course uh, before we get ready to close out here, Victor? Well, back in, in terms of your audience that are interested in trauma, you know, I am not a trauma specialist. In fact, I'm in, in producing these videos over the years. I've had to kind of, you know, learn a, a, a little about a lot, hopefully a medium amount about a lot. But if I'm producing videos on emotionally focused couples therapy, I've had to dive deep into that and learn something about that. Or uh, we did this video with Peter Levine, really good trauma video on uh, somatic experiencing approach to resolving trauma and psychotherapy. Had to learn learn about that. So I, you know, know something about trauma. It's not a, a specialty of mine like it is is for you and many of your listeners. But one thing I would say is that trauma can have the effect of really pulling out the rug from people. Like they've been living their life a certain way. They've had certain relationships and suddenly, wow, something, something happens to them and shakes their very foundations. So, you know, it can have a lot of effects uh, in terms of symptoms, uh, you know, PTSD, but it can also, you can also view that from uh, an existential perspective. Without um, a doubt, yeah. It can really shake up the foundations of someone's life and ca- cause them to re-examine, you know, what am I living for? What is really meaningful in my life? You certainly hear that kind of in the popular culture and in movies, someone, you know, someone faces a, a critical illness or, you know, disaster and suddenly it causes them to reevaluate what am I really living for? What's, what's important to me? And so I would say finding a way to, to broaden therapy, to allow for these very human uh, concerns, you know, I mean, we are not different from our clients in most fundamental ways. Hopefully, hopefully all of us as therapists have been clients. I mean, I would certainly encourage that. Uh, we need to understand ourselves. We need to work with our own issues. So, you know, we are clients or have been clients. And, uh, you know, we struggle with all these sorts of life issues, not just what, you know, these kind of classic symptoms of depression or anxiety. Uh, we struggle with trying to make sense of our life. And so I think one of the reasons my father's work has uh, been so uh, has such a broad appeal as he he really opens up the the world of therapy to incorporate these kind of general human conditions you know what's the meaning of life how do i deal with freedom you know how do i deal with knowing that i'm going to die how do i deal with uh, the fact that i'm you know as much as we're social animals we're we're born into this world alone we're going to die alone uh you know uh, if you're dealing with someone who's uh, an addict or a sexual addict, always trying to ho- hook up with people. Yeah, you can deal with that from maybe an addictions perspective or behavioral perspective, but you can also understand that this person is maybe frantically trying to always connect and avoid, you know, aloneness. So 
those are just some some random thoughts that come to me. Yeah, I appreciate you kind of dialing in that lens with the relation uh, relationship to trauma. So um, as we close out here, um, again, the uh, course link will be up at um, psychotherapy.net slash trauma, psychotherapy.net uh, slash trauma. Again, I'll have that linked up at the show notes page here at the traumatherapistpodcast.com. Um, how about a go-to book recommendation for our listeners, whether uh, psychotherapy related or not, or trauma related or not? What do you have? Because I know you've got a, a, a library of books in your mind there. What do you got for us, Victor? Well, yeah, I can't, I'll have, I can't limit, I don't think I can limit to one. So I would say, Certainly, if people are interested in, in my father's work, uh, his most recent, he claims his last book, which may be the case, uh, Becoming Myself. It's, his, it's an autobiography uh, about his life and certainly his work. Um, in terms of uh, his clinical vignettes, which he's known for, I think his first one, Love's Executioner, and uh, Other Tales of Psychotherapy is wonderful. And, you know, he's also written a number of, of fiction that are psychotherapy related or themes. Uh, one of my favorites has always been Lying on the Couch, uh, which is a great kind of thriller, uh, detective type story. Um, my mentor, uh, you know, uh, James Bugenthal, who I've talked about, I think his best work is called The Art of the Psychotherapist. Uh, not a quick read, I'd say. Read it slowly, it's dense. Uh, He's a good writer. I wouldn't say he's a great writer. I, uh, my dad is, I think, a very gifted writer. Um, but it's really, uh, I think, quite a brilliant work. And the last one, I had a friend, a former student of mine, uh, Tony Rumanier, has recently written a book called Deliberate Practice uh, hmm. in Psychotherapy. Or, uh, and what he, he's taken this concept, he and Scott Miller and others, I've been studying this idea of deliberate practice, which has to do with how do people develop expertise in all professions, in sports, in music, in chess, and you hear this 10,000 hours thing, you know. But basically, there's been a field of deliberate practice to study how do people develop expertise in any subject, in any, in any discipline, and trying to apply that to psychotherapy. And Tony's book is funny. It's the first take that. I hope this is going to be a developing field because so much of our education, I think, is really misses the mark in some ways. We go to school, we read books, we get case consultation, we're sent to see our first client and then, and then come back into a private room and say, tell me, how did that session go? And, and Tony has a kind of funny analogy. It would be like, uh, if you're learning painting, you go paint a painting, and then you come to a private room uh, without the painting, and you talk to your supervisor and say, I did this painting. It had a lot of blue in it. Uh, do you think there was too much blue? You know, it's just, that's kind of a, an exaggeration, but uh, right. starting to take a look into some real practical suggestions. How do you practice? Yeah. Not private practice. How do you practice your skills, just as a musician would practice scales? tennis player would practice strokes, a surgeon would do virtual reality, you know, or, you know, practice surgery. How do we start applying that to therapy? I and mean, that's certainly what I'm hoping my videos are one way to, to start practicing by, by observing, 
But then, you know, how do you actually take it beyond that and start practicing? So those are some books I would, I would recommend. Awesome. Again, I'll have those linked up at the show notes page. Thanks. Uh, Tony Rumanier, uh, James Bugenthal, and of course your father have them linked up. Um, Victor, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I really appreciate you being vulnerable, sharing your own story, and everything you've got going on at psychotherapy.net. Good. Thank well, you so thank much. You. Thank you for what you're doing. It's quite, a, quite impressive. I had thought of doing a podcast someday, but I got my hands full, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, folks like you are doing what you're doing. It, you've built up a nice body of work in a short amount of time. I appreciate that. All right, Victor. Talk to you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And once again, to learn more about this incredible course and to get a hefty discount, head on over to psychotherapy.net backslash trauma. That's psychotherapy.net backslash trauma. Thanks so much for supporting the Trauma Therapist Podcast. Once again, if you'd like to listen to the four most recent podcast episodes, including the one I posted this week, you can access those now by going to the traumatherapistpodcast.com. That's the traumatherapistpodcast.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.